Well, good evening, and welcome to the darkness. <laughs> it is funny how you go from sun one day at the same time and total darkness uh, the next day. Uh, it's kind of kind of a shock to the system. I, being in Ecuador, it's 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, and it doesn't really matter what time of day it is. That's the way it works out. Uh, so I kind of got used to that. And coming back here, I'm like, wow, it gets dark uh, really early. It seems like a lot earlier than I anticipated. Uh, well, we are continuing in our study in Ecclesia. We're studying in this series on the church. And uh, we have had uh, a series of messages, as Mike said, five messages to this point, all dealing with the church. And ultimately, we're not trying to deal with the church in a super deep level, but we are trying to deal with the doctrine of the church, the practice of the church, the practicality of the church on a level that reveals to us the simplistic foundational truths of the church. We are those who are in this series trying to get to the basic truths of what we should be doing in a world that is confused about the church. There are many voices that are trying to tell you what to do. And they're trying to tell you what the church ought to be, how the church ought to function. Uh, it's interesting as uh, there are some very fascinating bills that are trying to work their way through the state assembly here in the state of Michigan that are trying to tell you what the church should say. Those are dangerous things. So we have studied what it means uh, to be the church over the last five weeks. And there'll be a little bit of overlap with last week's perhaps, but there's some design to this. We want to recognize the theology of the church as the Lord is the one who directs our path and our course as we studied uh, last week. And we're going to add to that now. What does it look like to begin to put on some of the weight of the church, the muscles of the church? And we're calling this tonight the functions of the church. And there's really uh, about perhaps three messages. There's 11 of these functions that I want us to understand, and they will fit in some overlap to last week's as we begin to understand how these things work together. Because if God has commanded us to do certain things, if he's called us to do certain things, how do we now do that? And so that is the intentionality of the series. We want to build off of, and if you remember the very first messages of the series, it is designed that we would build off the cornerstone, that we would be what Christ wants us to be in the church. And so there will be overlap over weeks as uh, it's good for us to hear it by repetition through different voices. And so I tasked during the time that I was gone, I tasked uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Toonstra to, to really work out some of these areas so that you could hear the voices of all of our pastoral staff on these issues. And so tonight we begin an understanding of some of the functions of the church. And I recently heard a podcast, actually it was on my way back uh, from Ecuador and I had uh, been... I'd sat at the airport. I had terrible internet the entire time I was in Ecuador. I had a little bit once in a while. I could text, but that was about it. I, unless I was in just the right spot, I couldn't make any phone calls. I, I couldn't just wander around. I like to walk and talk. I'm not a, a walk, I'm not a sit down and talk to you on the phone. I'm a get up. You know. So the invention of, of the wireless phone. I remember when that you were no longer plugged into the wall. That was a blessing to me. Uh, I could just walk and talk, and then with a cell phone, I could walk anywhere and talk anywhere. That was, that was great. Well, I couldn't do that in Ecuador. I had to stand right, right there in order to get any kind of uh, communication out, FaceTime or WhatsApp. And so 
uh, I happened to be in the airport and I noticed that a podcast that I normally listen to had a, a new podcast coming out and so I wanted to listen to it, a new episode and so I downloaded it off of the internet there in the airport and got onto the plane and listened to it and the podcast was on this question, the necessity of sending out missionaries. Well, I've just been in Ecuador for 10 days. That uh, should have some real bearing on what I've been doing over the last several days. Um, The question, ultimately, that they were asking was, is there even a need to send missionaries to unreached people groups anymore? That kind of hit, just that title was kind of painful. I had been at Shell. Uh, If you know anything about the history of missions in Ecuador, you know that Shell is where Nate Saint was stationed when he flew from the airstrip there at Shell into the tribal area with Jim Elliott and the other missionaries, and they were martyred on the beaches of one of the rivers in Ecuador. I walked across from Nate Saint's house. In fact, the road used to end there at the Saint house. So as you come into Shell, Shell was a town that was developed by the Shell Oil Company, and it was designed for the exploration of oil in the Amazon basin. And uh, Shell was encountering all kinds of problems. All of their searchers would go out, and only a few of them would return. They were being killed by the tribal groups as they were going out, and they were facing all kinds of difficulties and diseases and all kinds of things there. So Shell was about to pull out when the saints arrived, and the road ended at... Nate Saint's house. In fact, he would taxi his airplane across what is now the main four-lane highway through that area. He'd taxi it right over to the airstrip, go up the airstrip, and take off over the Amazon basin. And so that road, now you walk across it. There's still an airport there. The military maintains it. There's still a few flights that come in to Shell today. But MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, still has three airplanes stationed out of there. But they no longer have any foreign missionaries living in the tribal groups in the northern or the rather the eastern portion of all or the western portion of all of the Amazon basin there are no foreign missionaries living in the tribal groups today in Ecuador so when I hear the title is there even a need to send out missionaries to unreached people groups I want to shut it off out of anger but I listened a little longer and, and kind of listened for spite, I guess, if, if I'm being totally honest. I wanted to listen for talking points to argue against. But then I began to grieve that even a question such as this would be asked in the Western church. How could this be a question? Have we forgot our function as a church? Have we as a church culture confused what we are supposed to be doing? We've somehow missed it, and I believe that in some ways we have. And so it's important for us to dig into ecclesia. It's important for us to dig into what is it that the church should be about. And your outline has five points this evening. Uh, You will notice as you work through those five points, as we work through those five points, that there's a space in between, and again, a lot of space for you to write notes along in the way. Now, I will say, cross out the fifth one. We're going to deal with that next week. Uh, I was way too ambitious. Uh, when you're on an airplane and you're trying to type messages away, you're like, yeah, sure, I could do that. And then you land, and you're like, yeah, probably not getting all this done all in one night. So 
Uh, we're going to break it up into three. We have 11 of them. We're going to break it up most likely into three messages, but I want to spend time on the first couple more than the last several. And so uh, that'll kind of give you an idea of what we're going to do over the next few weeks. But as we consider uh, the functions of the church, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this evening. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your church. Lord, we know that in many ways she has all of the warts and the wrinkles of a church that has lived in a finite, faulty, and broken world. Lord, we hear the voices of those who say that they know a different and a better way, and those are anti-biblical voices, but nonetheless they are appealing to our flesh, they're appealing to our ambitions for success, and we recognize that sometimes the work of ministry seems lonely and daunting even for uh, a congregation, a fellowship of believers. So tonight I pray that you would reorient our thinking, cause us to be those who recognize what these five functions of the church are and how we are to live them out in the great theology that we studied last week. Lord, we pray that you would help us to dig deep into this subject and to ponder it, to be transformed by it, and to not just be transformed for this generation, but for generations to follow, that your name would be glorified in it. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon each word that we hear, that may the words be from you. And as we dig through the pages of Scripture, help us to keep up and keep alert to be ready to understand and receive the instructions that we receive tonight. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I will, again, warn you tonight, as I have before, we're kind of going to need your running shoes on, your fingertips, because we're going to be moving through the pages of Scripture some tonight. We're going to start in Paul's letter, his first letter, to Timothy. And so turn over to 1 Timothy is where we will begin there with perhaps the most significant and most important of the primary functions of the church, and that is the proclamation of God's Word. And so as we look into the proclamation of God's Word, that is why you're assembled here tonight. This is the primary function of the fellowship, is to be those who hear and receive and proclaim the Word of God. And so preaching and teaching are the primary functions of the church, and it is perhaps the church's most important function. It is challenging because there's probably, as we consider ways of communication and uh, the movement of information from one person to a next, preaching may not be at the top level by the earthly standards, and yet that is how God has designed his word to be proclaimed. In fact, even in the most importance of theological truths, his word is to be proclaimed through the preaching and teaching ministries. The recent trends over the last several decades in this country have been shorter sermons and cartoon Sunday schools. You notice that? Uh, shorter sermonettes, instead of a, a lengthier message, you may get 15 minutes. And then that's kind of over the latest movie trends or music trends or books or some other sermonette type things. And then when it comes to Sunday school, we're going to cartoon that up. We're going to make the figures in the kids' Sunday school programs more cartoonish so that they'll pay attention better. And we've even done that into the adults where we stay surface level. Let's, let's study this book, this, this bestseller, or this resource over here. And we spend very little time actually in the Word of God. 
But as we turn over to 1 Timothy, I want us to catch what the Lord is communicating to us through Paul as he says this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, and then into verse 16. He says uh, this in, in 1 Timothy 3, 15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So it's important. We're going to stop here for just a moment. Paul is writing to Timothy to instruct the church how they ought to behave, how to stand firm against the pressures that are from within and without the church. So Paul has already laid out significant instruction, and you've probably been here over the last couple of weeks as Pastor Mike spent some time looking into elders and deacons and at least would reference back here in 1 Timothy. And so Paul is Moving on, he's saying not only do you have to have good and wise leaders, but the world is going to push against you and the church has to stand firm. That's verse 15. Now verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. So Paul moves from this instruction to Timothy to be the buttress, to be that which stands firm against the the forces that would push against it, to verse 16, drawing our attention to the wonders of the incarnation of Christ. But right in the middle of that statement, of this incredible statement of the incarnation of Christ, we find the primary function of the church, the proclamation of the incarnate one. The proclamation of the one who's incarnate. God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and proclaimed among the nations. One author writes, at the heart of the church is the incarnation, and at the heart of the incarnation is its proclamation. I believe that when we understand this central place, we begin to understand that this holds to the very message that we as a church are to be proclaiming, both to those who are lost and to those who are saved, Christ and Him incarnate. Involved in that includes Christ crucified and risen and coming again. Part of that includes the love of Christ. So this is, this is an encompassing idea when we begin to understand that Christ is incarnate and that the responsibility of the church is to proclaim the incarnation of Christ. We're understanding that this is the work of Christ and coming in the flesh, dying in our place and rising again and coming again and commanding those who are part of the body of Christ to do all that Christ has commanded us. This goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 28, which we'll see later on this evening. We have a responsibility to be proclaiming Christ. Preaching has a central place in the life of the church. And we notice that this becomes a major theme in First and Second Timothy. These are critical texts to help us understand that a faithful church will preach and teach God's Word faithfully. Notice what Paul says. We're going to run through a few of these, beginning here in chapter 4. Following the context that we've just read, jump over to verse 6 of chapter 4, where Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, And of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, teach the incarnation of Christ. 
Preach it. Preach it faithfully. Paul urges Timothy to put these things before the church, not just the incarnation, but the outflow of this, of the incarnation. And put this before the saints. Put this before the church. And doing so, Timothy, you'll be found as a good servant of Jesus Christ. What an important phrase. Timothy, you're the pastor in Ephesus. Paul is soon to be removed from the scene. Ephesus was Paul's, like, likely it was Ephesus, Ephesus was Paul's favorite place. Not that, it's kind of like when your child asks you, who's your favorite child? I'm like, I don't have any favorites. That's probably Paul. Paul would have answered that way. But Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other place. Having spent more time in Ephesus than at any other place, Paul calls them to himself as he's going to Jerusalem and the elders of Ephesus weep because they know they'll never see Paul again. So there's a, a near and dear relationship to Paul to the Ephesian believers. And so Paul sends Timothy to be their pastor. When he sends Timothy to be their pastor, he doesn't say, Timothy, I want you as a young man to do everything dynamic and great and grow this congregation and reach out and, and do all these wonderful things, have the best of this and the best of that and do the best over here and, and be the largest mega church you can possibly be. That's not what Paul tells Timothy. What Paul does tell Timothy, preach the word. Put these things before the people and you will be found a good servant of Jesus Christ. Think of the weight of those words as they fell upon Timothy. Continue on in the chapter, verse 11. It says this, command and teach these things. There's some train. notice uh, verse 7, he says, have, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then he goes into what it looks like to train yourself for godliness. And he says, put these things before the people. Command and teach this. Don't, don't follow after all the new fanfangled things that there are to do. Preach the word. Verses 13 through 16, Paul continues. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to, exhorting, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says, Timothy, don't give up. Press on. You've not crossed the finish line. It's a similar message to what he proclaimed to the Thessalonian believers that we studied this morning. Press on. You're not there yet, Timothy. Don't believe you're there yet. Don't succumb to the pressures. Press on. Pursue godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Practice godliness. And then command and teach that to the saints who are at Ephesus. The church must make its priority the Word of God. The Word of God must be our priority. It must be our focal point. Paul has pressed hard on Timothy not to allow the philosophies of the world to replace the priority of God's word. It is so easy to allow worldly philosophy to, to trickle in, to subtly begin to change the church. 
And, as we see in our society today, there's going to become increasing pressure. The very thing said from this pulpit would be in violation of some of the new laws that our our state assembly is trying to pass. We recognize that these are challenging days. And the world's pressures against the buttress that is the church will begin to blow all the harder. And what will we do? Paul says, preach the word. I'm a third-generation pastor on my mom's side. Uh, My grandfather was a pastor. He helped plant some churches in Colorado, and he pastored for a few years there. My uncle then on that side was also a pastor, and he planted uh, or worked in some churches there in western Colorado and served faithfully there, and then he became a Bible smuggler uh, during the late 70s, early 80s, smuggling Bibles into Uh, the USSR and China and all of those places that you couldn't go behind the Iron Curtain, they called it at the time. And then there's me, third generation pastor. And I remember speaking to my grandfather about, so he's with the Lord, he's long been with the Lord now, but I remember speaking to him about entering into the pastoral ministry and he said these words, preach the word. That was his only advice to me, preach the word. That's Paul's advice to Timothy. Timothy, the work that is before you is hard. It's challenging. You're going to be illegal in the eyes of the government. You're going to be hated in the eyes of the people. Preach the word. Preach the word. That is what a faithful church will do. Paul continues this theme as he goes into 2 Timothy, now closer to his own death. 2 Timothy chapter 5 and then we'll work our way backwards, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the myths, or turn, uh, excuse me, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Don't we live in that day? We live in this day. Paul says there's a day coming where people will not endure sound teaching. Beloved, we've arrived that day. We've arrived to this time. The church must recognize that it's not enough to stand before God's people and read a verse or two and then wax eloquent on whatever theme that the preacher or teacher wants to proclaim. We have to be those with our noses into the Word of God. And Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. So it's not just enough to proclaim it, we have to rightly divide it because the time will come and is now where people will not endure sound doctrine. And so that means Christians will try to deceive other Christians. There will be those within the church who do not know the truth because they've heard a verse or two pulled out of context 
and some preacher or teacher wax eloquent on those one or two verses and they have not rightly divided the word of truth and so out of their own ignorance and arrogance they are misleading other Christians because they will not stand for sound doctrine. Teaching and preaching must put the Word of God at the forefront of the believer's mind. It is the most critical function of the church. And if it was critical for Paul 2,000 years ago, it is critical for you and I in 2023. We must be found faithful. We must be found faithful in listening to good and godly preaching, wherever we get it. It's not enough, and I'm not going to give names, you'll probably be able to figure it out, but it's not enough to listen to one individual and then follow after his son, because he's the son of that preacher. But he is a heretic. Let us not follow those who do not teach the truth, who refuse to preach the truth of the Word of God. Let us refuse to have our ears tickled. Let us make preaching and teaching the primary function of our fellowship. There's time to do everything else. There's all kinds of time to do the other things, just not within the fellowship. You want to you have those other elements, sororities and fraternities? Great, but that's not what we are. We're not a fraternity. We're not a sorority. We are a fellowship, a family, a church. And our primary function is the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And so, we have the proclamation of the Word of God. And we move on. I could spend all day, I could spend several days on that theme. So we're going to move on uh, to the next one. What is another function of the church? The presentation or the presenting of the gospel. This is essential for us. We have been called to do this, and it is something that we're going to spend a few moments on. I'm going to to allow us to divide here uh, just a little bit, because our next one ties closely to this. We could say that evangelism and missions are the same, and I'm going to divide them and say, no, they're not. They're not the same, and so our next one will be reaching out. Uh, We'll see that in just a minute, but we're going to focus... Uh, specifically on evangelism. Separating these two, they are closely linked, and they're kind of, in one sense they are, two sides of the same coin, but they certainly are two different sides. And so we're going to separate them apart from one another. Evangelism is typically conducted on a more personal basis, whereas missions is more broad. It's that which goes out into the world, and it's an, an endeavor. It's a work of the church, a function of the church to reach out. Whereas in evangelism, the work of the church is to equip you to go out and evangelize your friends and your neighbors, to encourage you to go out and share the gospel. And this, as we studied or heard rather this morning, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, this is the go therefore and make disciples. Every believer is called to go and share Christ. And so both missions and evangelism share the same root command, but they are two different functions of the same coin. There are two ways to evangelize, and Scripture speaks to both of them. The one way is through our life, your manner of living, and the other way is through your words. Through your lives. Let's deal with this one first. It's fascinating to me 
that I can walk into some place and and I haven't had this happen too much here, but it does happen on occasion where uh, I've walked into like a grocery store and I've seen somebody from the church and they're doing something maybe that they probably ought not do. Uh, maybe they are yelling at somebody or they are uh, in the alcohol section or uh, they're, they're doing something that they're ashamed when their pastor walks by. And I just smile and wave and say hi and move on. But more importantly, is what is the outside world view? What is the outside world view? How do you live out Christ-likeness? Throughout the Word of God, the Lord uses a number of word pictures, and I'm just going to pick up on a few. We're going to move to the Gospels in just a moment, but on our way there, let's stop over at Philippians Stop at Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, because it's a theme we pick up that Paul actually picks up from the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. This is how you, believer, ought to be to those outside, those in the world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. The scripture says this, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me ask you a question. This is going to require an audible answer. Do we live in a twisted and perverse generation? You should be lights. You should be lights. Not lights that are dim, but lights that are bright. And notice one of the ways that it is dimmed, it's actually in verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. One of the fastest ways to dim your lights from shining brightly is grumbling. Oh, I can't believe that traffic was moving so slow today. All right. can't, can't you get that machine to work any faster? I've given you my credit card. Those kinds of things will dim your light very, very quickly. Gossiping, all of those things. Well, you wouldn't believe what's going on in my church. Boy, doesn't that dim the light that you should be shining? Paul in Philippians says, You are to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He doesn't say, If the world is a good place, you could shine as lights. He says, In the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, Christians must shine as lights. That is a theme that Paul didn't create. That's a theme that he picked up. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. All the way back to the first gospel as the Lord uses this illustration. And he does so in a way that he's going to use two illustrations. We're going to start with another one first. But he does so in a way to show us that we are to stand out in this age that we live in. Matthew chapter 5. Notice what the Lord calls the followers of the Lord first. He says this in verse 13, Matthew 5, 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except that it be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt isn't salty anymore, it's worthless. But The Lord says that you are salt of the earth. You are to cause, by your manner of living, a reaction in those who don't know Christ. 
a response that they taste suddenly that which was bland. You are to be that salt. The Lord continues. He uses another example, verse 14. He says, You are a light, or you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He continues in verse 15. So you are the light of the world. Verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So you are a light, a city on a hill. You are beyond that. You are a a light not hidden under a basket. Verse 16 tells us why. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're not a lamp, lamp for the sake of being a lamp. Where the light comes on, you're like, oh. A lot of Christians live that way. Like, look at me. Look at how well I'm shining. Look at how bright my light is. Everybody around can see my city on a hill. There's a reason that you're to be a city on a hill. We are to let our light so shine that unbelievers can look at your life and say, wow, only God could do that in a person. In other words, you've got to get out of the way. You've got to get out of the light, the, blocking the light from others to see it. You have to be one that let your light shine instead of hiding it under a, a bushel. This takes us all the way back to our little kid's song. But we are reminded that we are to boldly shine that light through our lives so that people say, you were so messed up. But God has done something in you that only God can do. What was it? Let me ask you this question. Maybe you've been a believer for a long, 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 long time. And people who are your, in your sphere of influence, they don't know you before Christ as Savior. Would they still say of you, God is doing something in them? I shared the story a little bit of the a man who's wearing the striped shirt in the video this morning as they were singing Behold Our God in Spanish. And he was our bus driver, as I said, and he would lead his family, many members of his family, to Christ. And the reason that they came to Christ is they said, you are an alcoholic bum. And now you're not. Only God could do that in him. He was an angry, hostile, alcoholic. And coming to know Christ as Savior, he was different. And his family said, what is going on? And he would share Christ. You say, well, I don't have that testimony. You may not have that testimony, but does the world still see Christ in you? The world can do a lot of, quote-unquote, good things, moral things, but the Christian is called to live life above those, outside of our capacities, so that the light of Christ can shine through us. That is through our lives. Secondly, we recognize that it is through our words. Sometimes our influence with non-Christians is limited, And the longer we are Christians, the smaller our pool of non-Christians becomes. So it is essential that we branch out of that. That is why, I mean, my entire world, I come to the office here, right down the hall. All of my office staff are saved. 
I could go home to my saved family and come back here the next day and have no interactions with unbelievers whatsoever. It is essential that you break out of your little spheres and into a non-believing world. That's why I coach baseball. That's why my sons play baseball. That's why my girls do swimming and other things. And so it stretches me outside of my comfort zone and into places where non-Christians exist so that I can share Christ with those who are outside. So let us stretch. But we also not only stretch our influence, but according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we are to be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within us. So when the world says, you are different, something about you is different, only God can do that, be ready to tell them that, yes, indeed, only God can. Don't take credit for it. Don't say, well, you're right, I, I know, and bashfully hang your head and say, this was Christ at work in me. This is what Christ does. I can't tell you how many times I have uh, found uh, maybe the, the cashier has given me too much money back or some, some matter like that, and I take it back and they say, nobody else would have done this. Say, so I know, and walk out with your chest puffed out. No. I return this because I'm a follower of Jesus. Or some variation. It doesn't have to be awkward and crazy. But use your words to proclaim Christ. How will they know Christ without a preacher? Be the preacher. Be that one proclaiming the excellencies of what Christ has done for you. But you better live it out. You better show it in your life. And then you proclaim it in your words. This is a primary function of the church, to equip you to be faithful evangelists. Every single one of us. You may say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's okay. God didn't make you have a gift of salvation or of evangelism, but he gave you the message of salvation, and you go and share that. Praise the Lord for those who are our evangelists. But praise the Lord that each of us has that responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of him who died for us. That is our primary responsibility. Let's continue moving on because it's closely connected to reaching beyond. We present the gospel and then we go out. Again, going back to Matthew 28, we are reminded of this great truth that we are to go, therefore. We've got to be intentional about leaving our confines, but there is a recent trend that seems to be a little bit subsiding, and I praise the Lord for this. I don't think this recent trend has been very good in the church. It was the idea that everything that we do is missions. Every time you reach your neighbor, that's missions. No, 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 no. That's evangelism, and that's good work. But it's not the same as missions, as being sent out, to go out to a different people, a different culture. This reaching out to your neighbor is certainly evangelism, and praise the Lord for that. We're not diminishing it. But let us not rise everything to the same level as missions. Short-term missions is also not necessarily missions. It's good. It gives us an opportunity to go do ministry. It's encouraging to the missionaries, but the hard work of evangelism and discipleship are necessary elements to missions. That in a short-term, couple-week situation is not going to permit you very many opportunities to do that. And so short-term missions are great for exposure, they're great for assistance, and it truly is ministry, but it may not be missions. Notice 
as we head back towards some of the epistles, we're going to stop over in a historical New Testament book in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and notice what the Lord says to His apostles who are preparing to watch Him ascend. He says in verse 7 of Acts 1, He says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the Lord gave the church the priority of missions He gave to the church through the apostles, the call to go to the ends of the earth. It is fascinating to me, and I'm going back to Ecuador because those are the stories that are resonating in my soul right now, but it's fascinating to me that you can take, there's a highway now past Nate Saint's house and a highway that goes north and south from there, and it follows right along the mountain ridge, right on the edge of the main portion of the Amazon basin, and it goes north and south. If you were to take that to the furthest point that you could go in Ecuador, you would get on a canoe, and you would canoe eight days down the river, and you still would not have reached the last groups in Ecuador. Despite all, you can't reach these places. It takes you a month to cut through the jungle. It takes you eight days to go down the river to reach some of the people groups that are still in Ecuador that have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is getting pretty close to the ends of the earth. And so in answer to the podcast question, we still have work to do. There's still work to go. These people groups have not even been reached with a missionary, let alone a language. Missions, faithful missions, is to leave your people and go to Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest places of the earth. It is the proclamation of the gospel. When the Lord grants harvest, it is the establishment of churches. There can be many ways to get this done, but it's not missions unless the gospel is the primary purpose. It's not missions unless the gospel is proclaimed. There's all kinds of groups. It was fascinating. I met a young man while I was worshiping with a small group of believers last Sunday in Riobamba, Ecuador. There was a young man from Zealand there. And uh, he's, he's doing work to help establish water, running water in some of the places around Riobamba. And he, and I praise the Lord for this, he said, I'm not doing missions, I'm doing humanitarian work. And I connect with the church. That's the right answer. Providing water does not provide living water unless the gospel is proclaimed. And doing great works may be wonderful, but it's not missions till the gospel is proclaimed. And so we recognize this great and wonderful truth here. There's many ways that it can be done, but it's not missions unless the gospel is the primary purpose and the message of those who are sent. A lot of great work can be done. A lot of support work can be done. And that too be called missions. But that support work is to enable the primary mission of the gospel's proclamation and the establishment of churches. Let's move on. Last one for this evening. We must be those who bow and worship. Bow and worship. This is a tough one. This is a primary function of the church. But it is one we have confused and mangled in our society today. 
And so I've got a, a book that I thoroughly recommend to you. It's called The Golden Thread of Worship by Triplehorn, Bruce Triplehorn. It's about a thousand pages long, maybe just short of a thousand pages long, small print. And it's definitely worth the read, though. What is worship? First, in order to understand worship, we must have no confidence in our own flesh. I'll turn over to Philippians again, Philippians chapter 3. We've studied this before, but I, I think it's good to repeat it and remind ourselves of these things often because we're so easily forgetting these. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, notice this. Paul says, oh, back up. He says, verse 3, says, For, for we, are of the circ- we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And Paul goes into who he is. But he says, I have no confidence in the flesh. If I did have confidence in the flesh, if I thought there was something in the flesh that would warrant me to worship better, to be called by God more completely, then I would have it, Paul says. But I have no confidence in the flesh. How many of us come on a Sunday morning with great confidence in our flesh? That's an introspective kind of question, one to dig into our own hearts. Worship is perhaps one of the most divisive issues in the modern church, but we do not see it as being that throughout the history of the church. It's just in the modern era. And I believe it's because we have a misunderstanding of what worship is, at least in part. We are to worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. It's reasonable for you to be a living sacrifice. That is that is such a, a weird connection, a living sacrifice. Sacrifices, if you notice through the Old Testament, don't live. You notice that? Sacrifices in the Old Testament died. But in the New Testament, you are a living sacrifice. The principles are still there. The blood isn't, but the principles are still there. That means you are wholly sold out onto the altar of the living God. You do not withhold or have confidence in anything other than or less than Christ. This means you pay no lip service but a life surrender. That's what it means to be a living living sacrifice. Therefore, a worship service, listen carefully, a worship service is not the music portion and only the music portion. A worship service is is the entirety of our assembly together. So from announcements to fellowship afterwards is worship. And it should prompt you to worship throughout the week. It should be a catalyst for worship on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and renewed again on Sunday. That's why there are no such things as lone wolf Christians. There are no... Christians who can operate outside of the fellowship because we need to encourage one another. We need the strengthening of one another. And we need to see each other worshiping from announcements to dismissals. Dismissals, I mean, when you walk out the doors. When you gather as a church, 
we recognize that what takes place on the platform for music is only one and probably the least of or among the least of the elements of worship. But we in our society have elevated it to the most important. But I started with the preaching of the word of God on purpose because that is where our focus is. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to acknowledge the authority and the preeminence of God. And we do that through his word. And we respond in music. And we respond in giving. And we respond in fellowship. And we respond in obedience. In fact, I would say out of those, obedience is the most important. And so we want to understand this. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We're not going to spend a lot of time working our way through, so bear with me as we uh, speed up. He says this, verse two, or chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 5, he says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When you gather as a church family, what do you think about? On your way here, what do you think about? Do you really think about the things of God as they are preached? Do you give with sacrificial intent? Have you cultivated a heart of worship that is manifested in vocal praise, in song, and in word and deed? Do you really think through the theology of the songs that are sung, or do you just know the words? One author writes this, he says, The church service should be the catalyst to get you to worship at all times. We worship best when we are fully obedient. Obedience is the basic definition of worship. Worship is to be a way of life rather than just an exercise on Sunday. Living sacrifices cannot pull themselves back off the altar on Monday and then relay themselves down on Sunday. Living sacrifices are those who are transformed by the renewing of their mind, not being conformed by the standards of the world, but being renewed day by day, because that is reasonable in light of the blood of Jesus Christ and all of the theology of Romans chapters 1 through 12, 1 through 11 actually as we begin into chapter 12. All of that great theology that you were purchased, you were a sinner, and so salvation has come to you. You were an enemy, salvation has come. And then once you've come to know Christ as Savior, you are sanctified. And sanctified, or rather, we'll go back, you were justified and then sanctified and glorified. Those are the outlines of the theology of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And then into the ninth through twelfth chapter, 11th chapter, is God done with Israel? Because if God can't keep his promises to Israel, he can't keep them to you. And Paul says God is keeping his word to the people of Israel. So you have Israelology, one of my favorite sections. In a, a few weeks, I'm going to be teaching a systematic theology too, and we're going to get closer to that Israelology. Not quite there in systematic theology too, but closer. That's one of my favorite ologies, is what God is doing through the nation of people of Israel. All of that is laid out for us, and all of that, Paul says, it is your reasonable act of worship to be living sacrifices, transformed by the renewal of God, not conformed to the images of the world. 
How do we do this? Romans 10, excuse me, Hebrews 10, verse 22, as we're here towards Hebrews, let's turn back a couple pages to Hebrews 10 and just notice we're out of time, but these, these things are important. Hebrews 10, verse 22, the scripture says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And notice Paul says, this is how we live within, or the writer of Hebrews, not Paul most likely, but the writer of Hebrews uh, moves through and he says, this is how we ought to live among one another as believers. The context of this is how do you consider or have you considered how to stir up one another to love and good deeds? Paul is saying, if you're going to live in the body of Christ, if you're going to worship through the body of Christ, if you're going to worship the one true God, then you will draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean by the, the, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. James says it a little bit more succinctly. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One of the reasons that... I so enjoy Behold Our God as one of the newer worship songs is because it takes the focus completely off of myself, places it fully on the person of God. I don't want, when I'm worshiping, I cannot get in the way. I don't want to be in the way. The greatest risk that destroys genuine worship is to allow the subtlety of rebellion to slip into your worship. And this begins when your attention is taken off of God and it is placed on you. Or your attention is taken off of God and it is placed on your personal likes and dislikes. We see this in every element of worship. We see this attitude in every element of worship. Say, well, I don't don't like to give that way. I don't like to sing those songs. I don't like the way that he said amen. (laughs) I don't like, his, his voice is annoying. His laugh irritates me. Whatever those things are, those are all secondary and should be out of the way of our worship. We should remove our likes and our dislikes. When we're focused on the true word of God, we're faithful, discerning believers focused on the truth of the Word of God. We see the same attitude that I just described in the religious leaders and the religious people of Israel when they love to hear their money clanking all the way down into the bottom of the offering box. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, provides for us that illustration. We don't have time tonight, but write that down. Luke 21, 1 through 4, the widow in the illustration that Jesus is providing is one of my favorite worshipers in all of the New Testament. Because she puts in just a little bit of money. You certainly didn't hear the clink, 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 clink of all the money traveling down into the offering boxes. You just heard drop, drop, and that was it. And the Lord says that she gave more in that little bit of resource than all of the wealthy people had given. Let us have a heart of worship like that widow. We are created to worship. No matter where you go, every religious system, including atheism, worships something. Atheists worship their own ideas, themselves. Islam worships Allah. 
Far Eastern religions worship all kinds of things, all kinds of deities, all kinds of uh, practices and their own gods of their own creation. We are created to worship. Every single one of us is created to worship. We were created to worship the one true God. And you all know it. You all know it. So do you draw near to God without distractions? Or do you worry about the time that's 7.09 instead of 7 o'clock? Are we worried about those things? Do you meditate in deep devotion before God? Is your copy of the Scriptures thoroughly worn out? Maybe not literally, but in the sense that you have spent time devoted, dedicated, diligent to these pages. That's the heart of a worshiper. It does not matter what your likes and dislikes are. It does not matter the tone of the voice. It matters, is God pleased? It is one of the priorities of the church to practice biblical worship. And that is the first four of the 11 purposes, the 11 functions of the church. We've got a long way to go uh, yet as we look at these functions, but I trust that as we've looked at these first four, they will help us establish the basis point for which the next series, whether that's two sermons or one sermon or three sermons, however it works out, will allow us to wrestle with this idea. These are simple truths but essential to helping us understand what the church is to be about. This is the function of the church, and we must get it right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the one who builds your church. Lord, we have certainly made a mess when we've been given the opportunity to do so, but we praise you that despite all of this, that you are the one who builds your church. But we want to be found faithful, Lord. We want to be those who are drawn into great truth, simplistic truth, yes, but mature truth of what the church is to be, to do, how she is to function. Because we want to be found faithful. We want to be those who are going and making disciples, whether that's in Byron Center or the communities that surround or the rest of the United States or the rest of the world. We want to be found faithful sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and we want to be making disciples, new worshipers, and then we want to teach them what it means to worship. So teach us what it means to worship. Let us be those who recognize that the worship service that we, join, that we enjoy on a Sunday is not just the music service, but it is all elements, all encompassing of our time together, focused on you, glorifying you, exalting you as a body of believers, sharpening each other, encouraging each other in brotherly conviction, and spiritual authority, digging into the Word of God, encouraging each other to study more deeply the things of the Word of God, that we would... See Sunday as a catalyst 
catalyst for us to get through the rest of the week. As we encounter sinful creatures who are actively in rebellion against you, may we not seek to appeal to them with our, our whims and our ways and our personalities, but may we appeal to them for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we truly be lights shining throughout Byron Center and every community that we've come from. Lord, we praise you for this evening and the opportunity to spend time together in your word. We pray that now as we enjoy the fellowship, as we depart from here, that our worship would continue and now be that true catalyst for the rest of the week, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.